0: Hello, it's Brody. I love bringing mummification to you each week, and if you'd like to support me to keep doing that, you can make a once-off donation through the Acast supporter feature. There's no regular subscription, and your donation will help pay our music licence, buy audio gear and put fuel in my car so I can keep interviewing the amazing women who share their stories with us. There's a link in the show description and episode show notes.
1: Ready to pop the question?
0: Hello and welcome to Mummification. I'm your host, Brody Matner. This podcast is a space for women and parents to talk about how they're feeling. And sometimes they feel like swearing. So this episode may not be suitable for younger ears. Nice to meet you. Yes, nice to meet you too. <laughs> Jill Gordon is a medical psychotherapist based in Sydney. She is a mother and a grandmother and after one phone call and several emails, I would like her to be my therapist and my stand-in mum as well. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for talking with me today, Jill.
3: That's a pleasure.
0: Uh, If you were stuck on a desert island and you could take one meal and one drink and one personal item, what would they be?
3: (laughs) Well, the most important one is the second one which would have to be a a sort of magnum of red wine of the best quality <laughs> that I would sip, sip very, very slowly. Uh, one meal, one meal. Do I have a favourite meal? Gosh, I'm I'm an omnivore. I mean there's nothing I don't like. That's that's too that one's too hard. Way too way too hard. And what was the last one? One Personal item. Personal item. Oh, well, it would have to be my fully charged um, phone <laughs> with with, with a, a fully workable connection of some kind to the outside world. So 5G on the island, please. And then I would ask for no more. Okay, that seems reasonable.
0: Uh, so I wanted to start today by talking to you about the hormonal changes that women undergo um particularly after they've given birth yep um I know that for me it was uh about five to seven days after I gave birth there was just a massive crash yes um and then of course there's big hormonal changes around breastfeeding when your milk comes in and then when you finish breastfeeding and that I think varies a lot too I know my experience was different with my two kids the first time I um I breastfed until 18 months and we very slowly weaned Uh, and then the second time at five months my baby decided she didn't want to do it anymore because it was there were other things that she wanted to concentrate on and so that was a bit more of an emotional crash for me.
3: Yeah yeah that's interesting because I had an almost identical experience um, with mine. My son my second was uh, six months old when he said, this is it, and literally spat it out, and I was devastated. Me too. So it's really odd, isn't it? Um, At the moment, one of my daughters is breastfeeding twins and they're 15 months old, and one in particular is showing absolutely no sign of giving up. She becomes enraged, Um, but the other one is now just weaning herself. So it's weird, really weird.
0: And how do those hormones kind of affect Look, that's such a
3: $64 million question and one that's really hard to research, really hard to get to the bottom of because there isn't just one hormone. Of course, there are a number of different hormones and they're interacting and they're also interacting with our environment, with our own personal circumstances, things like how relaxed or busy we are. Um, it's really, really hard to say, and it's not for a lack of trying. The thing that you mentioned about that plunge of mood anywhere from sort of three to seven days after the birth of a baby is so predictable that even with my first, when I knew that it was likely to come, and sure enough on day three I felt as though the world had ended There was a part of my mind that understood and then a part of me that just was totally overwhelmed by the tears and the feeling of absolute doom, Mm. which I think is, is the beginning of a really important emotional journey mediated by the hormones. And one of the things that I think we'll never really fully understand is how our own evolutionary history has set us up Um, Number one, uh, the hormones that are associated with an intense sense of engagement but also a really powerful sense of anxiety about protecting this very precious little creature and wanting to neglect almost everything else which isn't concerned with him or her. And it's both a joy but it's also an absolute torture um, to be so set up by our hormones um, to to see protection as being our number one priority, whether we recognise it that way or not, or just as an overwhelming sense of anxiety that so often comes along. Um, Which hormones are mediating that? It's really, really hard to say. I think the only thing that matters is, um, is how to manage it. Mm. There's certainly no artificial way of doing that I mean you know it seems like an obvious thing if this is mediated by hormones why can't I just take a pill? <laughs> but that will not and will never never be the answer.
0: Well that was my um, my next point was that kind of fear and worry that you, Well, I certainly experienced, I know friends of mine have experienced too, Um, you know, you feel really capable and then all of a sudden small things are very overwhelming like going to the supermarket or driving. I've got friends that all of a sudden just have this intense anxiety around driving Um, or even leaving the house feels
3: really big. Yes, yeah. And think of it in a terribly simplistic but I think Um, powerful way, and that is that if there are hundreds of thousands of years behind us of evolving the best strategies for keeping our offspring safe, then the obvious thing for a mother is to stay rooted to one spot and make sure that you have a reliable mate who is bringing you a plentiful supply of food, which will be converted into a plentiful supply of milk. And that very reliable other is going to keep predators at bay. (laughs) And so the two clear functions for mother and father are for father to keep mother safe and well fed. And for mother not to move, just not to waste a single, single kilojoule of energy on anything other than feeding and protecting the baby. Remembering that for most of human evolution, food was very difficult to come by. Reproduction probably only occurred at, you know, fairly scattered times. Women didn't sort of reproduce constantly because they weren't sufficiently well nourished to do so. So to have enough food to actually, first of all, to ovulate, then to conceive, then to safely bring a baby to the end of term, then to give birth and keep the baby alive, then to protect the baby against predators and hunger, that's That's a huge agenda. No wonder you just want to sit at home. No wonder you're afraid to go in the car because evolution is screaming at you not to do those potentially dangerous things.
0: And so how do we how do we marry that evolutionary side of ourselves and what's so ingrained with current society which says, get up and get out and go and go to Rhyme Time at the library and go and meet all of your mother's group friends and get out and go, 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 go,
3: go. All of which is very good advice. I don't think we should ever confuse an is with an ought. What I mean, just because something is the way it is doesn't mean it ought to be the way it is. It's very easy to get those two things confused and think that that which is natural is necessarily good. There are lots of natural poisons in the world. They are not good. We ought to find out what is poisonous and what is non-poisonous. So we ought to find out in the 21st century what is good for us. It may be that evolution says sit still and conserve energy, but since we no longer have to do that because our food supply is secure and there are no predators at our door, therefore what we ought to do is recognise how natural some of our fears are And recognise that there are things that we can do to overcome them. What can we do to overcome them? (laughs) Well, recognition is number one. It really is diagnosis, really is 90% of the cure. Just thinking it's natural for me to feel this way, but I don't need to. There is no real reason behind this fear. So what can I do to overcome it? and that is gradually to stretch myself, you know, to be very gentle with myself at the beginning of motherhood, but gradually to stretch and challenge myself, knowing that I won't come to harm and that, in fact, I can go to mother's group. But as we well know, mother's group can be a site of even more anxiety (laughs) because of the temptation to compare yourself to everybody else. Yes. And to feel as though everyone else is managing motherhood way better than you are. And every other mother is thinking the same thing. And the other way in which it manifests itself most commonly is the the very vexed return to work question. Mm. Um, You know, if I don't return to work, am I a failure? If I do return to work, am I a neglectful mother? And I think to recognise, again, that's a very powerful source of anxiety and to confront it, be honest about it, and find what is the best solution for our own unique personalities. For some people, it's getting back to work the minute I can. Mm. For other people, it's saying, work, what's that? I just don't want anything except my baby.
0: And it's hard to, um, I think, filter out the the noise of societal shoulds to really tap into what feels best for you. Yes. And then on, on top of that, it's, you know, that could be a, a financial question for your family, whether you have to go back to work or not.
3: Yep, exactly.
0: I think that then plays into the comparing yourself to other people. Yes, yes. Um, and that's, that can be quite a loud voice in one's head, I find.
3: Yes. And the other loud voice in your head is renegotiating the relationship with your partner because, you know, there was some really interesting research done years and years, decades ago in Melbourne among young fathers and it was looking at anxiety levels in young fathers and they go up too. And what a lot of the fathers were saying was really interesting and that was I have a sense of insecurity, which I shouldn't have. I've got a good job. We're fine financially, but I find I'm much more worried about our finances than I used to be. And where there's overtime work available, I take it on, even though that leads to tension with my partner because she wants me at home, but for some reason that I can't explain, I just feel as though I should be a better breadwinner. And I think that goes back to the same evolutionary background that for the male partner in particular, and this seems to be less of a problematic with same-sex partner, but for male partners in particular, there's this impulse to create a safe uh, and secure area, which in the modern world means how much money can I earn and, you know, how much can I ensure that our family is secure? And I think sometimes just understanding what's behind some of the things that can lead to conflict, you know, for the young mother to say, why are you late home from work? Um, And to understand that... The priorities now are for us both to share more of the, of the baby care and the child raising.
0: Well, I've found um, with my husband, he works four days a week and so he's got our our two girls one day a week and at the moment on a on a Saturday I do work as well. So he has them on his own two days a week. And I've found that he doesn't find it as hard to even get out of the house. Yes. You know, if I've got both the girls and I'm getting out of the house and they're three in one now so I've been doing it for a little while, I still find that to be quite anxiety-inducing. Yes. And it feels really big to pack up all their stuff and get out of the house, but he seems to just go, righto, the bag's packed, let's go, girls. Yes. And <laughs> why is that so different for, for him?
3: Well, I think it's still the same underlying anxiety. It's much, much lower for men in relation to to childcare They're actually on, and I mean, I'm making vast generalisations, but they're generalisations because they're generally true. Men, it would be wrong to say they care less, but they're less sensitised to the needs of the children and the children manage that perfectly well. They adapt to the fact that daddies and mummies are different perfectly well. But you do remind me of a brilliant episode of that wonderful series, Bluey, (laughs) in which mum and dad... Um, Bandit and Chilly take the two little girls to the swimming pool and Dad takes off with the girls without the sunscreen, without the shade, without the towels, without the sunglasses, without the floaty toys. And it's not till Mum comes along laden down with a huge basket that suddenly they can all enjoy their time at the pool because she has thought of everything. (laughs) And so there are... Male standards are lower than female standards. That's the short answer.
0: Well, and I I asked my husband why. I said, why why doesn't that stress you out, getting out of the house? You seem to just do it. And he said, I think because I do it less often than you, I've got my two days with them on my own. And so I go, righto, we've just got to do this, let's go. Yes. And so he sort of goes into go mode, I think. Yes. Well, that was his explanation. Exactly.
3: Exactly, and also dads, I think sometimes feel they've got something to prove. Mm. you know the, you you tell me it's tough, but I'm here to show you it's not. <laughs> and when you do have to only do it two days a week, that's easy. You can pull that trick any time.
0: But can that difference um, well, I, I, for me, I know it, it can breed resentment between you. yes. and how do yes. you how do you overcome that one?
3: Oh, look, I think humor is always a good ally. Yes. You know, to look behind and say, this guy is just basically showing off. <laughs>
0: <So>. <laughs> I'll tell him that when he gets home. He had a, actually, he had a particularly hard time getting the girls out of the house this morning.
3: The thing I love about your arrangement, though, is that I think there's nothing more salutary than allowing dad to do things on his own and In Right down in the very centre of his being, a still small voice is saying to him, you had better appreciate her because she does this five days and you only do it two. Yes. And it's really, really good for dads to do it and to do it on their own without being shadowed by mum or or corrected by mum or criticised by mum because your children will survive even if dad isn't terrifically good at it they will survive. They will know that mums and dads are different and you will get a break if you just get away. Just don't watch the way he prepares their lunch or puts them down for their nap or gets it all wrong. Just get away.
0: I think that was tricky for me initially when I went back to work with our first. I went back four days a week and he had Marley two days a week on his own and then she was in daycare two days. Um and that was really hard. I would message him and say, "Do you want me to pick up something for dinner on the way home?" And he would say, "I've already yes. done it." and yes. and so I had to really just s- back. just hand it over to him on those days, yeah. which was a challenge, yes. but much easier the second time round. um yeah. and they and they they respond differently. I was going to say better in some circumstances better because he does things differently with them than I do yes and then they adapt back when I've got them on my own and then they adapt again when we're both together
3: yes look in the best of all possible families children have an experience of mum and dad as being different but also being together when it counts so that you know if there's if I want to manipulate mum or dad I can't do it they're too clever for me but on the other hand I do know that mum and dad approach things differently and I can rely on them for different things and that's a That creates a really good experience of growing up.
0: Well, that was, uh, again, my husband and I were talking the other night when I was preparing questions for you and we were discussing how you parent together when you've both brought your own histories of of the parenting you received. Yep. That can be tricky too, I think.
3: Yes. And that's where it's important that you, again, with humour, can reflect on things that have happened during the day that may have created some tension or differences in belief systems and the possible reasons why. I mean, we rationalize a lot, and I think sometimes we don't get to the bottom of our own motiv- motivation anyway. But one of the really important truths is that our own childhoods cast a very long shadow over our lives. And the way that we attach to our own parents and the way we experienced parenting has an enormous influence not only on our own well-being, but on the, what we bring to the role of parenting. So just reflecting on, you know, what was it like with my mum? What was it like with my dad? Who were my siblings? What was our family like? Was it happy essentially or unhappy? Um, you know, did mum and dad split up and divorce? All those things are, are remarkably important when it comes to determining how we will experience our own family life.
1: That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
0: I also wanted to talk to you about a mum's sense of self after she becomes a mum.
3: Yeah.
0: How do I really feel about myself? How do I really feel about my baby and my partner? And our world's change so much when we give birth, and I found my experience with my first vastly different to my second in terms of my sense of self,
3: yeah.
0: you know, with my first, I, I battled myself internally on everything. I sort of fought um, what I eventually surrendered to, which, and I mean, surrender in a, in a nice way. I gave in that that my life was vastly different now. And so with my second, I didn't have that battle with myself. I was much more okay, let's just go with the flow. Yes. But there were whole there was a whole new set of challenges. You know, I couldn't pay as much attention to my first child once I had my second and all of those things came into play. How do we marry that?
3: Gosh, um, I, I'm not sure we ever... Or how do we begin to? <laughs> yes, whether we ever do it perfectly. But I think preparing as much as you can beforehand for the birth of the first child... But antenatal classes, I think, don't always cover all the topics that you really, really do want to cover. So I think I would begin to get a little bit more input into antenatal classes from the new mums wherever possible to just because this is a really significant um, issue, depending on what your identity was prior to becoming a mother, it may, it may move smoothly smoothly into motherhood, or there may be quite a dramatic contrast. But there is a sense that the person that you were is now quite radically changed. And I think it does, it just takes time to to come to, as you say, the word surrender is the perfect word that um, you have been defeated. You might as well be gracious (laughs) in defeat (laughs) And, and accept that at least for a period of time, you're going to be in a very, very different world. But what you carry out of that world is absolutely incommensurable. There is nothing else quite quite like it in terms of learning about yourself and learning how to then rejoin that other world in whatever steps work for you.
0: And why do we feel so ambivalent about the, the two versions of ourselves the me before I had babies and the me after?
3: Look, I, I have a very clear memory when my I just brought my first child home from hospital and I realised that I'd run out of fresh milk and I grabbed the car keys and I whipped out to the carport and jumped in the car and started to reverse. And I suddenly thought, holy hell, there's a baby in there. (laughs) (laughs) And I jumped out of the car and ran back inside and looked at her and thought, forgive me, forgive me. (laughs) But it was that the me that was independent, autonomous, had the right to go wherever I wanted to go at any time, had suddenly been lost forever. And, you know, my thought was, I've got to wait till she wakes up. I've got to get her ready. I've got to put her in the baby seat. I've got to drive down to the shopping centre. Um, you know, I've got to get her out of the car to buy one litre of milk. <laughs> um, so how do, you, how do you overcome that? Um, I think it, it really just is accepting that there are two perfect legitimate, legitimate sides to ourselves. We don't have to be wholly one or wholly the other. there isn't a foreordained role that we have to play. we don't have to please our mother our mother in law our next door neighbor or our partner um it's it's a you know it's a process of that inner conversation with ourselves and and it never finishes
0: and Why do we care so much about what other people think?
3: Ah that is so interesting because again, I go back to How is it that we've evolved to be the people that we are? And the survival strategy for females has always been be useful, be desirable, be attractive, be marriageable, be the person they want to reproduce with. Um, And so there's a very strong, very natural self-protection that says be what Simone de Beauvoir called the second sex. You know, to do that deferring, to do that cooperating, to do that pleasing, to be the pleasing person, why do women worry so much about what they look like? You know, it's just a really powerful evolutionary pressure to be desirable. (laughs) And so we have to learn how to not care about being desirable. That's what I mean when I, I say an is should not become an ought. Just because it is the case just because it is the way we have evolved doesn't mean that we ought to succumb. We have to be able to say dot, dot, dot you. I will be whatever I like. I will wander around in tracky-dacks and slippers. Um, I will do whatever I want because although there's a strong biological drive to please you, I've chosen not. (laughs) I like that a lot. That feels very freeing.
0: And why is, it's a, it's a big question, but why is motherhood so hard at times?
3: I think motherhood we have been the unfortunate victims of a process that has made motherhood hard. There are a number of reasons, but one is the fact that we no longer live in the way we live for most of human history and that is in small societies with our mother, our mother-in-law, Our aunts, our sisters, our sisters-in-law, our female cousins, our nieces, um, were all there for us. (laughs) We saw other women give birth and nourish their young. We participated in that. We may have been, even from quite a young age, given responsibility for caring for smaller siblings or for others. We've seen it all. It's familiar to us. And what happens today? We delay reproduction. We live in households which, with one other adult, which has to be highly pathological. We have no role models to speak of. Sure, we get a lot of them either online or, you know, through antenatal classes, but it's nothing like the lived experience that has perhaps imbued our entire lives from birth with a knowledge of what motherhood is actually like. We, we just, we have no one to turn to in time of need. We should have... You know, Our mother, our mother-in-law, our sisters, uh, if not in the next room, at least in the next hut, mm. um, we should walk out the front door and see a dozen female relatives, any one of whom is useful. <laughs> um, so unfortunately, modern Western life is a weird, weird way to live. One male, one female under one roof with maybe one or two or at most three children, that is, that's thats that's weird. That's not good. And yet we we think that it's okay. It's not.
0: As you just mentioned, you know, you could get your um, parenting or motherhood cues from online, which can be massively detrimental because especially with something like Instagram, it's so curated, can be so curated and dishonest really and shows. Yes, it's an ugly competition. <laughs> it's It's awful.
3: Yes, yes so
0: don't do it. <laughs> no, 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 I, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes. I, I don't about yeah. parenting um, yeah. because it can just be this, this barrage of information yes. that looks like it's easy and perfect and, you know, everyone wears white linen and, yes. and it's not that.
3: I think getting your advice from loved and trusted relatives and friends, and I know COVID has made it impossible at the moment, but putting that aside in person, over a coffee or on a rug in the park or with a long telephone call if it's a friend who's too far away. But where possible, connecting face-to-face and connecting with those who love us, reassure us, have our best interests in heart at heart, don't want it to be a competition, do understand the pitfalls of motherhood. Those things are precious and just put the rest aside.
0: Have you found um, that you've had a lot of mums coming to you during COVID with a whole new set of issues?
3: Uh, not so much. Um, I think you know it's, it's the older mums for sure with the pressure of work and homeschooling. That's a that's a huge one. But when I think about mums with babies and toddlers, in some ways. COVID has been a bit of a blessing, I think, of my own son and daughter-in-law at the moment who have a three-year-old and a one-year-old and they're both doing much more work from home, they're sharing a lot more, they're just snugged down um, and, yeah, buying more stuff online, doing more gardening, doing more home repairs when time allows. Um, So for that, that stage of life, I think probably... It's not so bad. It just becomes bad when you get to the stage where children who need the experience of socialisation are being denied daycare or denied kindy or denied school. That's hard. That's really hard.
0: And I suppose another another question is, um, you know, I find it particularly difficult to take care of myself in a way that I know would make me feel better. I know that I would feel much better if I exercised regularly. Um, yes. But actually putting things in place to make that happen is, yes. I find it really hard. I can only speak for myself, but a lot of my focus went, I've got to just look after these tiny humans. But why is it so hard then to actually make time for yourself? I mean, I think
3: this is fundamental to the essence of femaleness, which is survival by putting others first. You know, I have to feed my mate the highest quality protein so that he has the strength and resilience to go out and find more for our family. I have to, you know, please those around me so that they will protect me in dangerous times. So this translates as always putting ourselves second If you add to that in the postnatal period, the very powerful effect of hormones that say sit still, preserve energy and focus on your babies, (laughs) then to actually break that double bond and go out for a healthy run becomes enormously difficult. So we have to bribe ourselves in all sorts of ways, whatever works. Um, And, again, it's the is and the ought distinction. Just because this is a natural thing, to sit still, to focus on the baby, to preserve energy and to move as little as possible, that's a recipe for disaster, for health. So the ought is that I ought to find, an half an hour for myself every day for the purpose of exercise not to mention the other half hours that I need, the other things that are good for me. But that half hour, whatever form that takes, I've got to find that in my day for a minimum of five days out of the week, but preferably seven. And I've got to make a pledge and make a a deal with myself using whatever strategies I can. One of the things that we know helps just to reinforce it by telling one's partner this is what I want to happen. I find it hard. I want you to force me to do it. Mm. That helps.
0: Yes, Hel- having someone hold you accountable.
3: Yes, yes. Yes, I yes. find that helpful.
0: <laughs> yes. And what do you think we can do as parents to help our kids grow up mentally healthy?
3: Oh, that's that's so easy. Mm. Um, that's all good. <laughs> you <have> to do, <laughs> All you have to do is focus on being a happy, relaxed and mentally healthy person yourself.
0: Oh, maybe not so easy.
3: <laughs> Modelling those behaviours is num- is number one. You don't have to worry. You just, If you're doing all the right things yourself, then when it comes to helping them, you're in the right space to do it. And the most important thing to do is to avoid being a helicopter parent mm. because, as I said before, Most of normal human society is about groups of people with a lot of close relatives living in close proximity and helping each other. But that also means that if you're the mother of six, you're way too busy to think about any single one of the six (laughs) and therefore they have to hit up against life in a lot of different ways, sometimes unsupported by their mother. (laughs) Hopefully there's someone else in the family who's looking out for them, but I think what, what we're too inclined to do is to protect and to solve our children's problems for them rather than asking them, what are you going to do about that? And, uh, you know, that, that's another. Look, I, the one thing I would recommend is every day at least watch one episode of Bluey. We do that. We watch two a day. <laughs> Yes, at least because I mean, there's I'm put in mind of one where I think it's chilly, I can't remember, but there's one in which she basically says to the child, Oh, and what did you do about that? You know, and encourages them to just, Yeah, that's great, you know, you're doing the right thing. So you don't rush into preschool to say that child monstered my child, you know, you just work out what, well, what are you going to do about that? Because that's going to happen. The world has bullies in it. Um, so what do we do about bullies? How do we recognise them? How do we avoid them? Um, yeah, it's actually be mentally healthy yourself. So number one, work on your own well-being. Work on having lots of fun at home and work on always being open to the child to bring their problems to you. And don't solve them. For God's sake, don't solve them.
0: And that's um, I find that one particularly hard because I just want to make it all better. But I know that that's yes. not the answer
3: not good it's not good yes
0: and does do those things then move towards raising resilient children and then adults
3: yeah I think number one the first decade of life is all about keeping your children safe well nourished well protected well educated well supported with lots of time to play and lots of time to talk about life And as the realities of life become more apparent, as children develop their own sense of existence on a wider scale, things like mortality, which they become aware of in steps and stages. But as they enter the second decade, the adolescent decade, you shift from being the protector to being the coach. You're the person who is standing there helping them to prepare for adulthood. So the big question for the parent is, can my child prepare a simple meal? Can my child get safely from A to B? Can my child choose good and honest friends and avoid the bad ones? Can my child deal with the adversity of disappointment when they're not, you know, they're not chosen into the sports team or not chosen for the the school choir or the school band or the school debating team or the school anything, you know, deal with not being the best not being told they're their best because they're not. They're not going to be the best. They're going to be just one of the ordinary mob that we all belong to. Um, So prepare them, coach them to be good, kind, resilient, resourceful, conscientious adults. That's the whole second decade. (laughs) And and get prepared for separation. Get ready for them to leave and make it easy for them to leave which children generally do in adolescence by finding all your faults and telling you very loudly how um, how terrible they are <laughs> and what a what a failure you are, which is only their way of preparing to say goodbye. That sounds great. After you put
0: your heart and soul and entire <laughs> existence into making them good humans, yes. they tell you that yes.
3: you're horrible and see you later. Yes. Mark Twain did it beautifully. He said, when I was 14... I couldn't believe how stupid my father was, but by the time I was 21, I couldn't believe how much he'd learnt in the last seven years. <laughs> and that, that's it. That's it.
0: <laughs> oh, actually, I wouldn't mind just quickly circling back to um, to hormones. I know we've, we've come a long way. I've I'm, I'm yeah. nearly, nearly finished, but there was something I wanted to ask you. When we spoke on the phone you were listing kind of a plethora of, of hormonal issues that women can face and one of them was um, premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Yes. Um, which I had not heard about until recently when my GP said that she thought that's what was going on for me.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, can you explain a little bit about what that is and why or how it can come on after um, after yeah. giving birth?
3: Yeah. I mean, the first thing I would say is that doctors love acronyms. So PMDD is another favourite acronym, which is a completely arbitrary imposition of a term. Um, how do we arrive at it? Because we, we identify a threshold and we say, just as we say, like you're vitamin D deficient on an arbitrary threshold, we say you have moved beyond what we would call simple pre-mention. Menstrual tension, which is almost universal, to a degree of premenstrual tension that meets the criteria that moves over a threshold into what we would call premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Why do we say that? We say because it's sufficiently severe that it's actually causing more than just the usual range of problems. It's significantly impairing some aspect of your life. So premenstrual dysphoric disorder is really a matter of degree. It's a matter of degree that goes. It's like talking about a personality disorder. We all have personalities. We're all a little bit narcissistic, a little bit paranoid, a little bit this, a little bit that. If it gets to a level that impairs your well-being and the well-being of those around you, then we call it a personality disorder. If your premenstrual tension is such that it's driving your husband nuts, it can become premenstrual dysphoric disorder. So it's it's a matter of severity. We don't know exactly why it occurs, but there are some fascinating theories that I think I, I mentioned briefly. You know, why should there be this universal feeling of being ill at ease, of being moody, tearful, tense, untrusting and anxious in the period immediately prior to menstruation. It's a really bizarre thing. And why is it sort of, uh, why is it present around the world? And why is it even found in songs and stories from cultures and traditions worldwide? There are some fascinating anthropological explanations which would take a whole new podcast to explain. (laughs) Um, But just accepting that that is the reality of women's experience And when it moves to the degree of severity of becoming a dysphoric disorder, which just means, dysphoria just means severe unhappiness, severe mood disorder, Um, then it becomes a question of what can I do to try to alleviate those symptoms? And there are various strategies that can be used, many of which are behavioural, many of which are about taking better care of ourselves more exercise and more sleep being two of the the most important.
0: Being two of the things I have very little of.
3: <laughs> well, that's one of the reasons. The sleep thing is because we're programmed to sleep in such a way that we hear the baby's first cry. And that's just not consistent with feeling completely whole and healthy during the day. Mm. So one of the things about motherhood is just being constantly below the path. Yes. Until you get through that. <laughs> that that's the bad news. Oh, good. What's the good news? <laughs> there isn't any good oh, news. Oh, great. Okay. <laughs> no, there is There is that. Uh, there's the good news of that, just that amazing joy yes. of knowing that you uniquely on the entire planet and through every age, there has never been another Mali, and you're the one who did it. <laughs> so.
0: Yep. That is, that's yeah, that is a massive, massive joy, which is the the flip side to the intense rage that I experience pre-menstruation.
3: Yep, yep.
0: And so just to, to finish, uh, what's something that you would say to a new mum
3: that's empowering? Empowering. I think what I've just said, you know, it is an absolutely fantastic thing that you've taken the elements of the entire universe in your own body created something unique and with a relationship that only the two of you will ever have. So the empowering thing is how do I make myself into the best person I can possibly be so that I can genuinely say you are the best mother anyone could possibly have.
0: That's lovely. I think that's really nice. I think it it feels like it takes a bit of work but
3: work worth doing. Yep, and it never ends.
0: <laughs> oh, Good. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much for your time today jill it's been it's that's been a pleasure. wonderful um, to hear your insights on on why we are the way we are
3: just remember that every is doesn't have to be an ought you need to interrogate it modify it and make it work for you
0: i love that thank you so much for today it was really wonderful
3: that's a pleasure <laughs> bye-bye
0: Thank you, Jill Gordon, for your insight and wisdom today. There are some links in the show notes to Panda. If you feel you're struggling with postnatal depression or anxiety, they're an amazing support and a great place to start. There is also a link for more information on premenstrual dysphoric disorder, or PMDD. And for a great introduction to Simone de Beauvoir's book, The Second Sex, there's also a link to an article from The New York Times. Mummification is produced and hosted by me, Brody Matner. Our beautiful music is composed by Ben Talbot-Dunn. If you're enjoying the show, please rate, review and subscribe. You'll be notified when a new episode is released and it helps us reach new audiences, which in turn will hopefully help more women feel less alone. Thanks for listening.